tell you who is here, Hannah Bestwick. Yes, I am. Uh, without guitar, but with lots of ideas about stuff you liked back... Well, uh, science stories that we both liked. Yeah. And, and Andrew liked. Andrew uh, is not here, I'm afraid, today. He's, uh, he's uh, attending to some uh, family stuff. They've got some illness in, uh, in the family. He's had to nip up to Manchester. So uh, a big shout-out to uh, Andrew, and we wish... Um, Everything goes uh, as well as it can. Um, but uh, we will be mentioning him. We'll be hearing from him. Uh, he, he might be surprised to hear uh, a little bit uh, later on in the programme, but pre-recorded. Um, and um, we've been thinking about stories that we like. We've all thought about stories that uh, we liked uh, from um, twenty. Uh, 17. See, I've already forgotten. It. So I'm so <laughs> over last year. I can't remember. What it's was done. it? Oh, the yeah, door is closed. You're not, going, not looking back. <laughs> and uh, and uh, of course, we'll be looking forward to uh, things that are happening in uh, 2018 or what's happening now. What's in what's in the in the news uh, now? So without. Um, more ado let's find out what's been what's been going on with you hannah you've you've uh, i hope you had a good christmas yeah it was really nice i actually spent christmas um in madeira Ah, eating cake. Oh, I see. All I can think of is cake. <laughs> Madeira cake. Madeira yeah, cake. the actual Presumably real grow, Madeira cake. It grows on trees there, right? Yeah, I, you I just expect. pluck it out. Pluck Whole and made. <laughs> um, yeah, the Madeira cake is not, not what I expected it to be because uh, the Madeira cake we have here is just basically sponge cake but with extra syrup in it. And it's oh, something completely yeah. different over there. Oh, but uh, yeah, Madeira cake and Madeira wine. And how is it, how is it different? It's. Um, I don't know how they make it, so yeah. I actually can't tell you. But, but you it looks very different. It looks it looks more solid, like fruit cake without the lumps of fruit in. That's what it looks like to me. It was very dark, oh, and, right. and it's very oh, I'm with you sweet, in terms of rich. its color and its texture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh right, oh, very good and um, nice and peaceful. Yeah, actually, there yeah. wasn't there wasn't that many people there, which was actually quite nice. I yeah. wanted a quiet, it's a slightly warm Christmas. It's a Portuguese island out in the Atlantic, isn't it? Yes, so Very it's sort of ever so slightly south. Uh, sorry, it's hang on, hang on. I'm trying to trying to visualise a compass here. Uh, so west, to... it's west and ever so slightly south of Portugal, and um, yes. west and ever so slightly north of like Morocco. Yes, yes. So off the coast, off the north. Yeah. Uh, uh, west coast of Africa, yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's, so, it's well, lovely. Inter- it's an interesting place. Sea nice and hot to swim in? Um, <laughs> no, I really I, wanted I it. I really wanted it, it to be. It was actually... The, the internet lied to me. It said it was going to be actually reasonably warm in the sea, but it was yeah. even though it was a really hot day, uh, the day we decided to try and swim in the sea, it was still quite cold. I did it anyway, because, oh. you know, I was there, well, sort of halfway in. For, uh, congrats, <laughs> congratulations to you. I always admire those people who bla- break the ice on uh, New Year's Day. Oh, I don't know how New they do day. it. Yeah, uh, it stopped my heart in an instant. I'm fairly convinced <laughs> about that. Um, the only thing I know about, well, two things I know about Madeira. One is it's a Portuguese island, mm-hmm. and uh, secondly... Um, that they had some terrible forest fires. Yeah, they did. They had a, yeah. um, a really terrible forest fire last... I think it was last year. Yeah. Um, and I I was talking to a, a tour guide there who was explaining that actually it it was caused by arson in the end that they they found out, really? which is a really... That's very sad, It's really it? sad, actually, yeah. 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 And they, their forest is, like, their natural forest is... Like a, what they call, like, silver laurel forest. Yeah. And it's really it's really beautiful. 
But they've got a couple of invasive species, one of which I know is eucalyptus, but I, the name of the other one escapes me right now. Yeah, yeah. But what happened was, because eucalyptus, as we know, is really resilient to fire, um, and what it does is its seeds actually germinate after fire. Yeah. They, that triggers their germination. So all of the forest was sort of burnt, uh, not the whole island, but like the forest that was burnt, yeah. the native tree species couldn't, uh, were, were hit very drastically as well, yeah, yeah. but the eucalyptus seeds started germinating and grew up and right. have recovered and also survived much better than the native yeah. species, which just has undone a lot of conservation work they've tried to do to remove the invasive species from the yeah, island. That's a, yeah. that's a real shame. I mean, just on this on this thing, a lot of people don't realise, I, I, I think, that, that um, although clearly forest fires are, can be absolutely disastrous, in some places, like in Australia, mm. where eucalyptus flourishes, mm. um, it is part of its life cycle. Yeah, it uh, is. That, that every now and again, it burn, the, 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 the land is burned off and, and these trees thrive in, that, uh, uh, in the aftermath of that. Yeah, in some, um, in some places where they manage, um, have to manage land, um, they do set fires on purpose, mm. but they have to be incredibly, incredibly controlled mm, because you do yeah. not want, you don't want a wildfire. No, no. Don't want a to fire get out of control, of control yeah. in, 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 in the modern world is a very, mm, very bad very thing. Dangerous case. Which leads me uh, to talk about uh, down in, in Australia, where the eucalyptus comes from. Um, I believe we're talking now in the Sydney and um, maybe around uh, to Melbourne. Temperatures are incredibly high. They're talking about, I mean, it is, it is their summer, um, but we're talking about 47, maybe pushing up to 50 degrees centigrade, mm, which is hot. incredibly hot. Um, meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the other side of the Atlantic, uh, we've got these in incredible uh, things. I've just got a. I've written down the name of it. There's a bomb cyclone. Yes. Uh, That's going, what they've named it. They've, they've named it going on right down the east coast, uh, particularly centred around the Boston area uh, of the United States, where temperatures are. Now we were talking about this just before the show started. I think something like 35 degrees minus. Yeah, minus 35, 35 degrees. But with a strong wind blowing. Yeah, so winds have been getting up to almost 70 miles per hour in some areas. Yeah. So with minus 35 degrees, the general temperature plus wind chill factor in areas it does it can, can feel as cold as minus 75 degrees, which yeah. is just awful. That is so cold. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and they're saying that the uh, pressure can drop... Uh, 24 millibars in 24 hours, which in, apparently is just incredibly fast. Mm. And when that happens, it produces these uh, incredible um, uh, winds. Um, it, they happen when rising column, uh, a rising column of air leaves an area of low pressure at the Earth's surface, which then sucks in air from surrounding areas. And when the air converges, these, the, these different bits of uh, the atmosphere converge, the storm spins faster and faster, and often the deadly winds are uh, stronger the closer you are to the centre. Uh, so that's pretty bad. And already we've had several deaths from this. So mm. uh, strange weather indeed. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that down in Florida, where which is also uh, 
uh, felt the effects of this uh, uh, incredible cooling, iguanas have been dropping out of trees. Yeah, so yeah. the poor things have been... Um, so an iguana yeah, just, an is a big lizard... Is about uh, they, they can be they can oh, they be can quite be. large yeah, yeah they yeah. could be a couple of foot long I'm yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they they sometimes climb up trees and just hang out there for a little bit to rest or to sleep sometimes um, but what people have been finding is that they have been just just dropping out of the tree and just lying static stationary on the floor unable to move um, and this is this is a direct result of them getting too cold. Yeah. So iguanas are cold-blooded. They rely on ambient, out, like external temperature, to warm up their body. Yeah. They can't create heat inside their body. Yeah. And when they are, when the temperature drops inside them, instead of being able to do anything about it to warm up again, other than sit in the sun, um, their metabolism slows down. Like other processes inside the body slow down, which means they stop being able to do things like move very quickly. Or I'm or like hold on to the branch that they're lying on. Yeah. For example, and what's happened is they've got too cold, they can't function properly. They've gone into this almost as I think they call it a state of torpor, right. which is where the body functions uh, slow down, almost like going into hibernation but not quite the same thing. Um and then they're just just dropping out the trees. Um but if you if you move them into the sun and leave them there for a little bit, they do thaw out and get up and scuttle off if you if you help them get warm again. I was, so I'm gonna place drop now. Years ago I was I was in Nicaragua. I was actually doing some work in nice. Nicaragua, which is part of Central America and I had to leave uh for the airport very early uh, one morning. Mm-hmm. And as I came out of the little house that I was staying in, uh, I saw what I took to be a dog rummaging through a dustbin. <laughs> and it was big. It was a big, big thing. Um, and I realised as I got closer to it that it wasn't a dog, it was an iguana. Yeah. Standing on its hind legs. <laughs> just <laughs> just having a going, rummage. Going through my dustbin, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, th- so these creatures find it very, very hard to, to cope with the low temperatures. Um, Tallahassee, for example, which is in Florida, which we associate with, you know, even in the winter. Um, pretty warm temperatures. Pretty warm temperatures, you know, famous for its oranges and uh, 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 retired People just uh, having fairly genteel lives. They've had their first measurable snowfall in 28 years. 28 years. So iguanas really don't like that. No. Okay. Well, um, you're listening to Love and Science on uh, BCFM. It's great to have uh, your company. It's a rather miserable, uh, grim day in uh, Bristol. Um, but it doesn't have to be grim because we've got some science chat, some science news, and uh, we hope whether or not you have the vaguest normal interest in science, we hope to change your mind. And if you love chatting about science, where you are in exactly uh, the right place. So uh, grim day or not, it's uh, it's good news because you're listening to uh, Love and Science. And uh, I'm joined, as uh, you will have heard, if you've been listening uh, by uh, our usual uh, presenter uh, uh, Hannah and uh, Hannah Beswick and uh, we have been looking back already at some uh, stories that we liked from last year we'll be looking at uh, some contemporary ones as well um, there was one that struck you wasn't it Hannah that you you, you said yeah, you, you wanted I, to bring up all about lambs being yeah. lambs in bags lambs in <laughs> lambs in bags indeed um, I I thought this was great I actually really quite like uh, medical news and things like that so I do follow it a yeah. little bit um, but this is 
really quite sci-fi and I thought it was... I really liked it at the time when it came out and it's about uh, a new kind of um, incubation let's say, technique for premature babies. Yeah. And it's being developed at uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And what it involves is um, removing a, uh, a fetus that is developing, so between about um, 22 to 24 weeks, that's the aim, uh, to put that baby that's, that's going to be premature into a bag to allow it to continue developing as if it wasn't delivered. Right. So as if it hasn't ever um, been born yet, to get it to a late enough stage that its life expectancy is going to be, uh, sorry, its chance of survival yeah. is much, mm. much greater. To get, get to the point where we'd say it was viable. Yeah, so it's almost, yeah. what they've developed, it's almost like an artificial womb, yeah. um, but it's just like a bag that you put the developing um, fetus in yeah. and um, you connect its... Uh, umbilical cord to this this sort of thing that allows its own heart to pump um, its blood through to gain nutrients so that it can continue developing to full term. Now the reason they want to do this kind of thing is because if you're um, if a baby is born premature between about 22 and 24 weeks um, its chance of survival is as low as 10% so that's really low but if you can um, if they can continue developing up until 28 weeks, that chance of survival is significantly, significantly higher. Um, and the reason being is that when you're um, 22, 24 weeks old, there's still a lot about the child that's not developed properly. Yeah. And one thing that happens very starkly is when they first take a breath of air, uh, a few breaths of air, the development of their lungs stops right. so even as these babies grow into adults they will always have um underdeveloped lungs there's also other things that are associated with being premature such as poor eyesight poor uh, or like uh, hearing difficulties other things um more severe like uh, uh, cerebral palsy and other other disorders that are associated with being premature right and what they hope to do so this this was originally it's being developed on yeah. on lambs yeah. so not on human babies yet and it's going to be many years before it can be used on human babies um is that if there's go if there's some problem that the baby would have to be premature um such as um just a reason that the mother couldn't carry to term you can you would in theory remove the child by cesarean put it into this bag and allow it to develop further into gestation as it were so it can actually um develop its its organs to a much much better um much more advanced stage and give that child a much better chance of of surviving yeah yeah they're, they're, they're saying that in the story the the version that uh, i read they were saying there's still a, a significant risk of infection mm, through yeah. this so they've got a number of problems to overcome but yeah um they're finding that the lambs who uh, that have been nurtured yeah. in this way um have normal development in all respects yeah in all respects and and that's the thing like there is a, is a significant risk of infection but there's also a significant risk of infection even just being premature yeah so if you're kept in a, a standard incubator that we use now there's still a risk of infection there yeah, yeah. um and but they want to be very cautious with this kind of thing because there have been um new treatments and things that haven't quite worked out as they wanted them to but this does look really hopeful because like you said the lambs as far as we can tell they are they're developing perfectly yeah Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, uh, reminding us about uh, that story. That's uh, that is amazing. Mm. Um, and 
I want to come now. I mentioned uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Glaster, who, who again, along with Hannah, is uh, normally uh, uh, presenting this show with me. Um, Andrew's not able to be with us uh, this week. So, Happy New Year, Andrew. It's still okay to say that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And uh, we, um, uh, of course, he often brings us some really uh, lovely interviews that he's done with very interesting people. And uh, one of them that uh, he brought us uh, last year, not so long ago, uh, was with the astronomer real uh, the astronomer real <laughs> the astro- i think he is the astronomer real <laughs> but he's also the astronomer royal uh, lord martin reese uh, uh, a fascinating uh, man uh, a, a very highly accomplished uh, academic and um he was talking to uh, uh, andrew about the importance of uh, gravity waves and this is the interview that andrew did with him where does this fit for you in the story of astronomy? It's clearly an important breakthrough, and I think it's sociologically very important because it shows how you can make huge developments by very precise engineering in the uh, gravitational wave detectors, which is quite amazing precision to detect anything at all, plus also international collaboration and multi-waveband astronomy to follow up the gravitational wave signal by looking for neutrinos and finding gamma rays, X-rays and visible light and all that. Uh, I think it indicates how astronomy is a very broadly based international and multi-technique subject, as is seen by the fact that one of the papers has 3,000 authors on it, which is about 1,400 from the gravitational wave detectors, plus people from the 50-plus observatories that have been involved in the follow-up observations. So I think it's uh, interesting, and and I think um, neutron stars, of course, um, were first discovered 50 years ago, Uh, and their discovery was really a big surprise. Uh, There was some speculation that neutron stars existed, but the fact that they were detectable as pulsars by having magnetic fields and sending a lighthouse beam of uh, radio emission towards us was something which no one really predicted. So I think the discovery was a really big surprise, and then the observations developed fast, and uh, seven years after the first discovery of a pulsar, the first binary pulsar was discovered. And once we knew that existed, then, in a sense, we knew that there must be somewhere in the universe events like the one that's just been observed, uh, where two neutron stars get close enough by gradually losing energy through gravity radiation that you get a sort of final spectacular splat when they merge, giving a black hole. And uh, the wait's been very long, but it's very uh, gratifying that at last an event of this kind has been observed and of course it's important to us as astronomers but I think it's also important for physics because this exemplifies not only the um, uh, international character of astronomy but also how astronomy provides a way in which we can learn about the properties of matter under conditions far too extreme to ever simulate in the lab and of course neutron stars supremely exemplify that in their uh, densities, their strong magnetic fields, and in their strong gravity. And so this exemplifies how, uh, even if one isn't interested in what's out there for its own sake, uh, one is interested in uh, testing the laws of nature right to extremes. 
And that was um, Martin Rees, uh, the Lord Martin Rees, who's the Astronomer Royal, uh, talking to our very own Andrew Glester. Uh, we are looking at some science uh, in the news and science behind the, behind the news here on uh, Love and Science. And um, one of my favourite stories uh, is, is actually the story of a crash. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's not because uh, I'm somebody who's really into, into uh, junk uh, falling around and everything, but because uh, the... Um, this was done uh, deliberately, and it, it's, it's in space. It's the Cassini probe incinerated on entry uh, to Saturn, which you might think, well, that sounds terribly grim. Uh, what went wrong? Well, they, they did it quite deliberately because it was the end of a, a long mission. Um, the American-led Cassini space mission to Saturn uh, came uh, to a spectacular end back in uh, September, uh, of uh, uh, of this past year, um, the controllers commanded the probe to destroy itself by plunging into the planet's atmosphere, and it, apparently, uh, it lasted for about a minute. Uh, that's all it could take because uh, Saturn is a giant mm. planet. It's not as big as Jupiter, but it's uh, uh, smaller than that. But even so, it's a giant planet with incredibly uh, dense uh, atmosphere. And uh, it wasn't able to survive very long before being uh, pulled apart. It already run out of fuel, uh, and NASA determined that the probe shouldn't be allowed just to simply wander around. It'd be a piece of uh, space junk. And uh, the loss of the signal from the spacecraft occurred pretty close to prediction. And we're getting close now uh, to what it is that amazes me ab about this. I interviewed um, a few years ago... I remember it was um, uh, somewhere near Trafalgar Square. Um, one of the engineers who'd worked on this probe, mm -hmm. and he was the guy who had designed uh, a probe, actually, uh, which was part of Cassini, that detached itself. It went down whilst Cassini was orbiting Titan, one of the m moons of, of Saturn. Titan has a sea of methane. And this probe went down, sat in the sea, in the methane sea, bobbed up and down, measured the height of the waves, the constituency of the, um, uh, the substance it was floating in, the wind, the temperature, all of that kind of thing, sent the information back, which we were then able to pick up on, on Earth, sent it to Cassini, which uh, relayed it to us. And I can remember uh, saying to uh, this engineer, you know, that must have just blown your mind. That was uh, amazing. That, you know, he, I had no I, idea. He, he, he was able to say, I designed this. Here is yeah. a, this thing uh, which is sitting on an alien world reporting accurately about what has gone on there uh, and what is going on there from... Uh, millions of miles yeah. away. How big is it? The probe. Uh, the, 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 probe the the one that was sent down the, into the, the ocean. The probe that was sent down, I think, was really quite tiny. It was um, uh, uh, maybe it was uh, about a, th a foot long, something something wow. like that. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Nice, yeah. and that was your favourite one from seven, 2017. Well, well, actually, the or one the, of the, the story of uh, Cassini. Yeah. And 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 its mission, um, to me, is uh, is just absolute absolutely amazing. Um, it um, 
it's traveling at 120,000 kilometers uh, an hour. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, just flying, flying around, bringing us closer than we'd ever been uh, before to um, these amazing bodies in, in, in our solar system, uh, giving us the kind of information we never had before. And it's the detail that got me, just yeah. the sheer detail and precision uh, with which this is done. Of course, it's not unique to, to, to this project, but for me it was the first uh, that I was really aware of mm. uh, where, where this happened. Yeah. And um, uh, then right at the end of it they said, OK, uh, it's time, uh, time to go, and uh, they, they, they crashed it into Saturn. It was a very, very spectacular and uh, important moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there we go. Um, uh, so uh, I feel uh, a certain amount of passion uh, about uh, about that. Yeah. Um, sorry, carry on. No, I was going to say this is also a time that would be quite nice to have Andrew to sort of just do a nice oh. talk us through everything that it's done in his in his way that he does with his nice voice. Can you can you imagine he he he'd go crazy? He'd go crazy. A story like this, um, but of course one one of the things that he's. Uh, uh, very keen on, and uh, I'm trying to make the this work. No, it's not going to work for me. Uh, is that uh, uh, Andrew has said said to us? Of course, he 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 wants to look ahead uh, to space missions. Sorry, I'm just switching computers at the moment. Not that anybody needs to know that, but that's why that's uh, happening. Um, and um, so he's looking ahead for space missions uh, for 2018. And um, there will be, apparently, this year, new space missions headed for Mars, Mercury, the Sun and various others. So although um, we're all worried that, uh, you know, funding for science uh, is um, uh, dwindling or under threat and all of that kind of thing, the atmosphere isn't quite so uh, good. In fact, it's looking pretty good uh, for uh, uh, space research uh, at, at the moment. Um, uh, there's a thing, I'll just tell you one or two of these. Space missions planned in 2018, there's something called ICON, um, NASA's um, Ionosphere uh, Connection Explorer. It was supposed to happen in 2017, uh, but it should launch in the first half of 2018, and it's going to look at the interface between the Earth's Ionic, ionospheric and terrestrial weather and space weather. So apparently uh, the connections between uh, things which are happening in, in different places mm -hmm. uh, around, around the Earth uh, are... Um, uh, they're, well, they're interconnected, and that's important. So understanding the interaction between these regions is crucial. That's what that is going to do. Um, uh, uh, there's something called uh, Ch uh, Chandrayaan, Two, which is set to launch in March 2018. Uh, the, word, the name Chandrayaan uh, means moon vehicle in Sanskrit. It's going to be India's second moon mission, and it consists of an orbiter, a lander, and a, 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 a rover. And uh, it's uh, well, it's going to the moon. TESS, this is one to watch apparently, it's uh, going to be launched in March 2018, NASA's transiting exoplanet survey satellite, I'd love to name something, it's great <laughs> isn't it, we'll call it TESS, uh, which will, like Kepler, watch for tiny dips in a star's brightness uh, as an exoplanet creeps across its uh, line of sight. Uh, but it's a little bit different uh, from 
the Kepler telescope, which has been doing all all this, uh, and it's going to target smaller rocky worlds around bright nearby stars. In other words, we know a lot about the kind of thing you can find, and now we're specialising uh, in looking for the sorts of uh, planets which uh, might uh, support life. Um, and it goes on. So uh, there's quite a quite a list there of um, uh, space exploration projects coming up in 2018 it surprised me how many yeah and uh, if you want a bit more detail on that as well we're just reading from skyandtelescope.com yeah uh, the astronomy news section there's loads of detail about the upcoming project for 2018 absolutely okay well i'm uh, going to go to a, a, another interview uh, now that um, andrew did for us um uh, and i really enjoyed this because this is about the search for extra terrestrial life uh, and uh, it was with a, a man uh, called Seth uh, Shostak and uh, well here it is well they've made us look once in both <laughs> cases tabby star and the uh, claimed uh, the putative Russian signal but it was really a signal but I think it was a satellite and I think the Russians do too uh, we did spend telescope time we did use the Allen telescope array which is our uh, instrument for searching for signals, and we spent several days on each of those objects uh, looking for something. In the case of Tabby Star, it would have been very hard to find anything simply because it's very far away. In the case of the uh, uh, the Russian signal, it was thought maybe it was coming from this star that was only 95 light years away and known to have at least one planet. Uh, that isn't quite so far, so that the, the the fact that we didn't find anything means more. But then again, the Russians look, I think, 39 times, and they only found a signal once. So to me, that's indicative of a satellite. But could it not be indicative of an alien species sending a signal out and then turning it off? Yeah, could be. Could be. But unfortunately, it, it, you're not going to get the Nobel Prize for saying, yeah, well, we only found the signal once, but maybe they just broadcast to us for a short period of time and then went on summer vacation. Uh, nobody's going to have any reason to believe that. Yeah. Okay. Whereas you find it over and over again and people using other instruments also find it, then you can say, this is real. I, I try also to keep historical perspective on Tabby Star, because in the 1960s, for example, when the people at Cambridge University in the UK found the first pulsar, they called them LGMs, little green men, because they didn't know what they were. And they kept calling them that because that was a possibility, although, you know, a low probability possibility. But they kept calling them that until they found, you know, two and then three of them. And then they realize, well, these aliens aren't going to be <laughs> in cahoots, you know, spread across the galaxy, all sending regular pulses into space. And then within a year of that, they had figured out what, what was really going on. That isn't the only instance of that by any means. And in fact, it's generally the case when you find something puzzling in the sky. And after all, that's what you're trying to do as an astronomer, that uh, some people will resort right away to an explanation based on alien activity. It's never been the case in the past. So, you know, when Tabby Star comes along, that's another duck in the row there. That's another case where, well, we don't understand what's going on. And, you know, one possibility is that it's alien activity. But history would suggest you're likely to be proven wrong within two years. Why, why is it important for the people who are looking for intelligent life in the universe to, to have a sceptical standpoint? Well, I, I, look, this, this is an experiment that uh, may take a while, I, I think another couple of decades before we have success. And there's a tremendous interest by the media in the possibility that a signal is real. So in the case of this Russian signal, you know, uh, that 
the Russians themselves never said anything about it. It's not that they keep it secret. It's just that they themselves didn't believe it. They just thought it was interference, so they didn't make a big deal about it. We we pick up satellites, you know, several times a minute. That that is not unusual at all. So I think that the Russians were in the same situation, and there was nothing to it except that an, an Italian astronomer actually made this story public and had some guy write a blog about it. And then suddenly the media jumped on it because, after all, you know, everybody's seen the X-Files, everybody sees, sees the movies, and they figure if they really found aliens, there's no story that could be bigger. So they're, they don't want to be left behind. That, that's our experience. This was perhaps the biggest uh, media story in maybe forever, or at least in the, the length of time I've been with the SETI Institute. From my perspective, the scientific discipline of SETI is far more well thought of today. But your inbox probably tells the, the real picture. Yeah, I, I think that the public, A, is very interested. Keep in mind that one, well, I mean, you know, I wrote something about SETI for The Guardian what, a couple of weeks ago. And it had 1,500 comments. I think that's a testimony, not not to my my opinion piece, but it, it was a testimony to the interest by the public in this subject. I think the public is very interested. I think a lot of them know that we found you know thousands of planets out there, and maybe one in five stars has a planet somewhat like the Earth. Uh, you know, not many of them will know that number, but they do know that there are plenty of worlds out there, you know, like a trillion planets in our galaxy. You know, they've seen aliens all their lives in the movies and on TV, so they figure they, they must be out there. Uh, do they think it's better science than it used to be? They probably assume that it is. Every You know, the march of technology is well known to everyone. On the other hand, one-third of them think that the aliens are not only out there, but they're here, you know, buzzing uh, the countryside in their spacecraft or uh, just carving graffiti in British wheat. Uh, that's, uh, you know, something <laughs> aliens somehow seem to like to do. <laughs> trying to communicate to the inhabitants of Hampshire and Wiltshire for some reason. And that was uh, Andrew uh, talking to uh, Seth uh, Shostak uh, from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial uh, life. We have a story about a bionic hand, and it comes uh, at, a, at a perfect time because lots of people went out over Christmas or just before Christmas and saw the new Star Wars film featuring Luke Skywalker, who has, of course, a bionic bi arm. A bionic arm. Um, but this is real. This yeah. one is actually real. Uh, scientists in Rome have unveiled the first bionic hand with a sense of touch that can be worn uh, outside a uh, laboratory. This is great. It's um, well. The reason this is the first one that can be worn outside the laboratory is because um, or laboratory or laboratory. Which one do you say? <laughs> what do we say here in the UK? Or lavatory? <laughs> or lavatory? Yeah, in, in the UK, I think uh, we say laboratory. Okay, laboratory. Yeah. And. The reason being is because previous versions had a computer and battery pack that was just too big to walk around with. And yeah. This new version has one that can fit, be put into a rucksack that you can wear outside, um, sort of go about doing daily tasks if you want to. It's still a prototype at the moment, but it was um, trialled on a few people, one of whom was Almarina um, Mascalero who lost her hand about a quarter century ago, and she got to wear it for about six months. And the amazing thing about this one is that it can allow her to tell the difference between hard and soft items. So when she mm. picks up items with the bionic arm, she says she can sense almost instantly whether, what, whether or not it's a hard or a soft item, which will allow her to gauge how hard to grip, grip whatever she's picking up. Uh, she says it's almost like having her arm back, which is amazing. 
Um, yeah. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Uh, it says the information is relayed to uh, Almarina's brain via tiny electrodes implanted in nerves in her upper arm. Uh, and she was blindfolded when they tested it. And uh, as you said, she was uh, under those conditions, was still able to tell whether the items she was picking up were hard or soft. Uh, apparently, she told the uh, interviewer who, who did the story uh, for the BBC, I mean, the story's in lots of places. We were just looking at the BBC site. Uh, she said, the feeling is spontaneous, as if it were your real hand. You're finally able to do things that before were difficult, like getting dressed, putting on shoes, all mundane but important things. You feel complete. And apparently... Uh, the 3D printed bionic hands trial is beginning in Bristol. Oh, really? Yeah. That's it's going to be happening in Bristol. So this is like a world event and it's happening here. So amazing. I'll tell you what is another world event that's happening here. Oh, yeah. John Ford is in the studio. He is. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. I wonder, can we carry on? How, yeah, how long just... do you think we can carry on saying that? Till December 31st, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did, you, did you have a good Christmas break? Uh, yeah, had a lovely Christmas, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was probably one of the best I've had. It was oh, just we nice. didn't do anything. Nice, nice. Yeah. It's pretty good. Home and, you know, that's just didn't perfect, anything, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Family yeah. round and yeah. all that. And, yeah. uh, of course, all my kids have grown up now, and so they, yeah. they come around with their other halves, which is nice. It's lovely, yes. yeah. Yes, and then you can say, right, it's time to go again now. No, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I like I wanna, them staying. I want to put my feet up. I like them staying. You've, you've covered some stuff today on the show, haven't you? We have. Yeah, some God, things. Blimey, yeah. We've bionic hands, bionic... Yeah. What was the other thing you did? Boiling the bag babies or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we did try. There's an awful lot that we, uh, we, 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 we haven't covered. But I know there are some things here you think we should have looked at. Three things. Yeah. Uh, this day in 1998. Have any of you smoked, by the way? Do you smoke now? That's not a, uh, I have done. My, yeah. my so mother knows a, about this. Yes, I, I have. have I have it? done, but I, I haven't done for many years. Well, I've never smoked. But on this day in 1998, scientists announced the identification of the, uh, for the first time, of a key brain chemical related to nicotine addiction. Oh, oh wow! Yeah, but people are still smoking, aren't they? Um, in 1996, who remembers uh, Calypso and who sold Calypso? You probably don't, Hannah, but you will, Malcolm. Uh, Jacques Cousteau. Remember the, oh, all those TV yeah, programs? Geez. Great scientists, yeah, yeah, marine. Yeah. Well, biologists. I was I was determined to live underwater. I thought, <laughs> Were you? I thought when I grew up, I knew there was something fishy. About <laughs> well, Calypso on this day in 1996 was was accidentally rammed and sunk to the bottom of the harbour in Singapore. I never knew that. Um, he tried. To, to raise funds to build a, a new Calypso. This was a science boat. He, he cool, under, thank under you. I, had, I was thinking the yeah. ice lollies. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. That's <laughs> I was really confused. That's, that's Calypso. About? This was cal oh, okay. Calypso as in the dance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Calypso. Um, in fact, it was an old British minesweeper, um, which served as a ferry in Malta after World War II, funnily enough. But yeah, um, that happened on this day in 1996. And finally, we have, you haven't done this, we'll say happy birthday. Born this day, 1942. He's 76 today. Stephen Hawking. Fantastic. Oh, wow. happy, happy birthday, birthday. Stephen Hawking. How did we miss that? Thanks for being with us from Hannah and me and John. Stay tuned for John for after the news for getting Bristol home. Talk to you again next week. Take care. Bye.